You know, one of the things that's true is that royalty fascinates us, doesn't it? I mean, if the royal family of Great Britain, if they buy a shirt, if they post something on social media, it becomes international news. And in fact, we're so fascinated by them. When Kate Middleton and Prince William were married, the, the television viewership was more than double that of JFK's funeral. There's something about seeing someone and what we know about them is that they receive the privilege and the prerogative and all of the trappings of royalty, not because of what they've done, but because of who they are, because of who they are. That one of the things that's most fascinating about royalty is if you think about it, if they had been born in Nance's Creek, their life goes a different way, right? If they are citizens of Afghanistan, life is different. That they have the privilege and the prerogative that they have, not because that they have earned it in some way or deserve it in some way, but because they are born into it and as a result of who they are. Imagine with me that as Prince Charles ascends the throne, which we know is fairly imminent, that when he ascends the throne, that he renounced all of his privilege. Imagine that he took many of the royal residences and the palaces that belonged to him. And he had the world's greatest real estate auction and he sold them off to all of the billionaires of the world. He took the crown jewels, which are officially listed as being priceless. And even the crown jewels of England, he took them and he auctioned them off to the great art dealers and jewelry collectors of the world. He would have collected by this point billions of dollars. And imagine if you, an interview with Charles and someone asks, King, King, why would you do something like this? Why would you sell your palaces? Why would you sell the crown jewels that have been handed down generation after generation? And he said, well, there's orphans around the world. And so I did it for them. I'm setting up a trust, a worldwide orphan trust so that the money that has been raised from the royal residences and the money that has been raised from the royal, from the crown jewels will be set up in a trust to make sure that orphans around the world will have proper nutrition and sustenance. Our immediate reaction would be, what's his angle, right? What's his angle? Why would he do that? People aren't intrinsically that self-giving. That people intrinsically aren't that self-deprecating and that self-sacrificing. And so we would be wondering, what is the political motive? But in truth, brothers and sisters, this is the picture of our king. This is the picture of our king. A king who reigned upon the throne of the universe. A king before whom were creatures that were millennia and millennia old, all harking around and proclaiming his praises. A king that had known only happiness, only peace, only satisfaction, only contentment, only exaltation, only adoration, giving up his privilege so that he might come to us, the orphans. 
Brothers and sisters, would you turn with me now to Philippians chapter two as we see a king who willfully comes from the orphans of his kingdom without coercion and willingly. Philippians chapter two, we're gonna begin in verse five. When you get there, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse five, God's word says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Where we go to this morning is one of the th richest theological texts in all of the Bible. And it's given into a context of some of the most mundane of problems that Paul is addressing. And this is really a, a sequel to what we looked at last week, an addendum or an explanation theologically of the practical application that Paul gives last week. And it's to the address of, an is of issues that are found in Philippi. What's the problem in Philippi? They have a humility problem. The problem in Philippi is that each is looking out for his own interests. Each is looking out for his own preferences and for his own comfort. And they're, they're grumbling and they're gossiping and they're dividing from one another. The problem in Philippi is that the Philippian Christians are selfish. Now for us, when we think about selfishness, we think about a problem that is so common so pervasive that we almost just let ourselves off the hook for it, don't we? We say, yeah, I know I shouldn't think like that, but. I, I know I shouldn't say this, but. I know it's supposed to be about reaching people, but this is how I feel. This is what I think. This is what I want. And so when it comes to selfishness, even selfish, selfishness in the life of the Christian, even selfishness in the life of the church, we somehow accept it as being a, a norm of life with human beings. And it is norm in the life of human beings, but brothers and sisters, it cannot be accepted. And we see the seriousness with which Paul addresses this selfishness, this pride, this, this selfish ambition in the life of the church by the language that he uses to address it. That Paul sees what we would think to be the most ordinary and mundane of problems and he launches what amounts to a theological warhead at it that he might totally destroy and dismantle it. And so he says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind that he is talking about is the mind of Christ, the mindset of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the, the mindset that is in humility, the mindset that counts others as more significant as the, than themselves, the mindset that puts the interests of others ahead of your own interests. He's saying, take the mind of Christ because you are in Christ and being in Christ as the body of Christ, you ought to think like Christ and want like Christ. 
Christ and believe like Christ and see like Christ, that your attitude and your mind and your mindset ought to appear as that of Christ Jesus. That is that Christ's body should have Christ's mindset. Makes sense, doesn't it? That we are his body. What does your body do that your mind doesn't want it to do? Your body is under the control of your mind. Your hand goes where your mind tells it to go. Your leg walks when your mind tells it to walk. You jump, some of us, when your mind tells you to jump. And the only time that your body does something different than your mind says to do, we equate it to unhealth and dysfunction. But brothers and sisters, as the body of Christ, as the hands and the feet of Jesus connected under one head and baptized by one spirit, do we have his mind? Do we have his mindset? Are we going where he tells us to go? Are we doing what he tells us to do? Are we loving the way that he has called for us to love? Are we living radically and sacrificially and generously the way that Christ has called for us to do? It, does the body of Christ have the mindset of Christ, the attitude of Christ that we might be spreading and a, His glory and accomplishing His mission? And so to that end, what Paul does is he lays out a series of portraits for us a series of portraits of the living Christ so that we can see these portraits laid side by side of who Jesus is and realize and understand what Christ's mind is like, what his attitude is, that we might find it so in our own lives. And what you're gonna see is that there's a, a logical order to the way that he lays these portraits out so that they build one upon the other, ultimately in a culmination in verses nine through 11. The first portrait that we see here is that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Son of God. We're talking Christianity 101 here, right? That Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 6, let's read it together. He says, Who though he was in the form, he being Jesus, though, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What we have here is what most scholars to believe a first century poem or maybe even a first century hymn. In fact, we don't really know that Paul was the first one to write down these words or that Paul was taking the words that someone else has written and using them to explain his point. That he's taking words that are so highly revered, so highly thought of in the life of the church that they have written them down in form to be memorized and sung to the adoration of Christ. And Paul is taking these same words and he's using them for us. Now what we know is that those who write poetry or those who write lyrics, they, they write with a symmetry that is beautiful and a symmetry that is powerful. And you can see it right off the bat here. Twice he uses the word form, doesn't he? It's the, the Greek word is the word morph, right? Like, so, so he says he is born in the form of God. And then he says he takes on the form of a servant. So you see these paralleling stanzas in the poem or in, in the song here. And, and what's interesting is when you take words like that, sometimes... When an artist writes, you have to unpack it a little bit to really get to what he's saying, right? So when we read when he's in the form of God, that can hit us a bit strange. 
We read that he's in the form of God and we think in our minds, does that mean that he's like God but not God? Does that mean that he is in many ways resembling God but he's just a form that is similar to God but not God at all? But that's the opposite of what Paul is saying actually. The word form here, if we go and we look however, how it's used throughout the Greek Old Testament and we see how it's used in the New Testament, what we can see is that the word that's used here is used most often to represent something that is maybe different in presentation, but the exact same in essence. It's the word that we get the word metamorphosis from. The metamorphosis. We think about like a caterpillar that transforms into a butterfly. It's in essence the same. It's the same being. It's the same insect. It's just changed form, right? It's in a different form. So the caterpillar has transformed into the butterfly. And Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, this word is used. Jesus puts on his power and his glory and he's standing there with Elijah before three of his disciples so they can see that he is in fact not just the son of man but the son of God to be high and lifted up and it's to show he is no different in essence he is no different in nature he is no different in being it is instill the the revealing of his glory which is in his human flesh obscured so it's the same in essence. It's just maybe different in presentation. So what Paul is wanting to communicate to us is that in every way that the Father is God, Jesus is God. In every way that the Father is God, Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He is God now and He has always been God. He is pre-existent and He is preeminent. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient and He is omnisapient. He, all things were made by him and through him and for him and all things are held together through him. He has existed in all eternity as happy, mighty, and satisfied. He is invulnerable, invincible, and unmatchable. He is transcendent, yet imminent. He is fearsome, yet loving. He is rich, yet benevolent. He has been surrounded by creatures of worship, singing of his perfection and goodness since before the foundations of the earth. 1,700 years ago at the Council of Nicaea, those early church fathers gathered together and they said it like this. He is begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And brothers and sisters, he has with God as God, every prerogative, every right, and every privilege that comes inherently, intrinsically with deity. Yes. Not because of what he's done. Not because he's earned it. Not because he deserves it, but because of who he is. Because it is his entitlement as God Almighty to receive these things. And so the last part of verse six, he adds on something else that's a bit confusing for us. He doesn't just say that he is in form like God. He says at the end, he says, and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So again, our minds are maybe reeling a little bit. Are we talking about Jesus is not all the way God or not equal with God in some way? It's not what we're talking about either. The key word there is the word grasped, grasped. 
that these words are being built one upon another. And so Paul in his mind has established in firmness that Jesus is in every way God. And so he's elevating that to the next level. He's elevating it to the reason that Christians sing. He's elevating it to the reason that we praise Jesus and join together in Jesus's name and pray together in Jesus's name. He's elevating it to the worship of the church, to the adoration of Christ, so that we can remember who Christ is and what Christ has done. That is, that Jesus, though God, though intrinsically was deserving of every privilege and prerogative of deity, did not see those privileges, did not see those rights as being necessary for him to grasp, for him to cling to, for him to hold on to. That Jesus, though God, did not insist upon his own rights. Think about that. Brothers and sisters, as good Americans, if we are good at anything, it is insisting upon our rights, is it not? It is insisting upon the First Amendment. It is insisting in the court of law upon the Fifth Amendment. It is insisting upon due process. We are good at insisting upon our rights. And we are quick to say, I am an American. I know what the Constitution says and I expect it to be upheld. And here is Jesus saying, I know that I am God. I know what is mine. I know what is my prerogative and what my rights are. And I let them all go. I let them all go. I don't have to cling to them. I don't have to declare them. I will set them aside that the orphan may be provided for. See, Jesus was entitled to his own preferences, yet prayed in the garden, not my will, but your will to be done. He had the right to never know sadness, to never know discouragement, to never know pain, to never know shame or embarrassment. He had the right to judge and to never be judged, to serve, to be served and to never serve, to have and to never give. He had the right to know joy without the interruption of depression, relationship apart from the wounds of betrayal and life without the sting of death. Yet brothers and sisters, Jesus forfeited his rights. In every case, he did not insist upon his very own prerogatives. What a searing picture that is for a selfish church. What a searing picture it is for a church that insists upon its own preferences, not even its prerogatives. What a searing picture it is with, when we come with all of our self-righteousness and all of our self-importance and all of our selfish ambitions and try to make the church what we would have for it to be in a hold and petty offense when it is something different and otherwise. What Paul is saying is to bring your pettiness, bring your preferences, bring your self-assigned prerogatives into the shadow of the cross and your pettiness will not survive the glory of the reigning Christ. Self-importance won't survive Jesus's glory. So when we are tempted to evaluate sermons instead of applying them, when we're tempted to critique ministries rather than serving them, when we are offended by one another rather than loving one another, we are to come into the shadow of the cross and remember that the world is not centered around us. And in fact, the very one around whom it was centered, the very one who held together every molecule of water that fills the Pacific, knew his own rights and forfeited them for our behalf. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, let us put on the mindset of Jesus. Let us live in the attitude of Christ. The second portrait that we see is that not only is Jesus the son of God, but Jesus is the son of man. That Jesus is the son of man. Oh, y'all, this passage, if you memorize a passage, if you're looking for something, this is the one. This is the one. Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The son of man was Jesus's favorite term for himself. Throughout the gospels, Jesus referred to himself more as the son of man than he did by any other title or any other name. And it was because he was the seed of Eve that had been promised to the world that would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. He was the son of David that would be the greater and the truer David. Whereas Romans 5 said, David through his one sin had condemned us all and cursed us all. The greater David, the new David, the reigning David, the truer David, Jesus Christ through his obedience would come and live a perfect life and deliver us all into newness of life. So the question becomes, what did he empty himself from? Or what did he empty from himself? That this has been the, the cause of many debates and many heretics throughout church history, many that have been renounced. And what they would say is maybe Jesus was emptied of his omnis, right? That, that maybe Jesus came into the world and he emptied himself of his omnipresence, he, meaning that he's everywhere. Or he emptied himself of his omnipotence, meaning that he's no longer all powerful. Or he emptied himself of his omniscience or his omnisapience, meaning that he is no longer all knowing or all wise. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Jesus is all of those things. The world was held together all 33 years of Jesus's life. And Paul makes it equally clear in Colossians chapter one, that it is through Christ and for Christ that all things are made and in Christ that all things are held together. And the world didn't stop being held together by the, risen, by the reigning Christ just while he lived here on earth. Maybe then, we would suggest that he emptied himself of an awareness of his deity. That he emptied himself of an awareness of being God. Maybe he was fully God. He just wasn't aware that he was fully God, except, except, except throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, he received the worship of sinners and pardoned their sins, something that only God can do. Except that he spoke and waves laid down flat and he walked on water as though it was dry ground. Except that he met a woman in Samaria and he knew every everything from her history and everything from her past. And he said, go and sin no more, except that he met a woman that had been bleeding for years and she touched him in a thronging crowd where he couldn't have even seen her face, just the hem of his garment. And immediately the bleeding dried up and power left him and he stopped and he said, I know someone has been made well. Who is it? No, 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 brothers and sisters. He did not empty himself of an awareness. He did not empty himself in any way of his deity. Instead, he willingly set aside the privileges of lordship that were intrinsically his. He emptied the fullness of God into the brokenness of humanity. He emptied the invincibility of God into a fragile and dying man's body. He emptied the eternal into the temporal. He emptied the adoration of the angels for the rejection 
affection of men. He emptied his command of angel armies to wash the feet of his own betrayer. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself of his dignity, not his deity. But Paul goes on to make sure that we understand that as much as Jesus was like man, and by using the word like, I mean he was a man, entirely a man, he was still different than other men. He was a different type of man, what I mean to say. He, this, is, this is given to us when he says, being born in the likeness of men. So he takes on the, he empties himself, takes on the form of a servant, being in essence a man, but like a man in that there, there, there's something that distinguishes him from other men. And what is it? It's not that Jesus was somehow less of a man or Jesus was only half man and half God. Or, he was wholly a man, but instead what made him different is that Jesus was perfectly a man. Jesus was perfectly a man. When God made man in the garden of Eden, he placed him there. And do you remember what he said? It is very good. It is very good that man was placed in the garden without a sin nature and being born of a virgin apart from the line of Adam. He did not inherit the sin of his father and he came into this world without the sin nature that you and I were born with so that he lived as a man and not just as a man, but perfectly as a man so that in Christ, what we are able to see is the apparent design of God from the beginning for who mankind was to be. And Jesus suffered as we suffer. He gets hungry as we get hungry, but he lived without the propensity towards sin that he might live in obedience and faithful life as our rightful substitute. And nothing better illustrates that he's a different kind of man than the fact that he was not coerced into taking the form of a servant. He was not coerced into taking the form of a slave. He did so willingly twice. It's emphasized in our text that Jesus voluntarily did all of this. It says what? He humbled himself. He emptied himself. No one did the emptying. No one held him at, not, at gunpoint. Jesus, uncoerced, did what Jesus wanted to do. And that was to come in the form of a servant and empty himself into a painful body that he might redeem the world. The son of man has no place to lay his head, he says. And yet, did he make himself a house? Did he make himself a tent? Did he make himself a pillow? Did you know that if you search all of the gospels that you will see clearly the power of God going through Jesus and coming out from Jesus, but not a single instance did he use it for his own advantage? Not a single time did he make his life easier by his own almighty hand. He healed sinners. Crippled people began to walk, deaf people began to hear, blind people began to see, but the Son of Man, the Son of Man didn't have a home to lay his head and he did not build himself the mansion that was his prerogative. See, Jesus is a man as much as he is God. 
Jesus is a man as much as he is God, and he lived as a man. He obscured his divinity by emptying himself as a lowly, homeless servant. But in fact, he so emptied himself and made himself nothing that Jesus became not only a man, but a curse. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did you know the Philippians couldn't be crucified? The Philippians couldn't be crucified. They were proud citizens of a Roman colony. That Roman citizens, the worst thing that could happen to them, even in a capital trial, was that they would be beheaded. They would not have to endure the suffering of being nailed to a cursed tree and publicly shamed in front of all of their community. But here is the Son of Man, the one who has come and lived perfectly, the one who has come voluntarily, and he will not be spared the shame. He will not be spared the name of reproach. No, the man of sorrows will voluntarily allow himself to be nailed to the tree where he will be hung on the curse for all of man. We can't think of him being a servant, of him emptying himself and not think of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, can we? You can't do it. In fact, Paul is, is calling for us to call into our mind the picture that Isaiah had painted so long ago. Listen to what he says, especially in verse seven of Isaiah chapter 53. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 paints the picture of the very first consenting sacrifice that we find in all of the Old Testament when the priest was going to slaughter the bull on behalf of the people, they would come and the bull would be tied up and they would have to grab it by its horns and, have, and, and subdue it and hold it down until they could ultimately slit its throat and sprinkle its blood. But here is the Son of Man, the one who he says in Matthew 26, he is commanding the armies of angels and he is there able to decimate all of the world and deliver himself, yet voluntarily, day in and day out, he re-ups for the assignment so that he goes to the cross and he doesn't open his mouth. He does not resist the arrest. He heals the ear of his resistor. He does not resist the executioners. He prays for the salvation of the executioners. No, the suffering servant so emptied himself to become the curse for all men that he consents to his own execution. He consents to his own shame. He consents to his own embarrassment that you and I might place our faith in him, consent and submission and allegiance to him and be delivered from our sins now and delivered from our sins forever. So you see, brothers and sisters, Paul is beckoning you and he's beckoning me to bring our pettiness into view of the cross again. All of us who believe that we ought to be honored and appreciated and served. He reminds us that we are following after a one who lived under his own shame, who lived serving those that ought to be praising him, being rejected by those who came to save, praying for those that were slaughtering him. And he says, oh, church, 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 lay down your conveniences, lay down your comforts, lay down your complete complaints. 
lay down your offense, lay down your pettiness and come to the cross and take on the mindset of Christ, the Christ that voluntarily gave himself for you. Oh, men, follow in the image of the Son of Man. What does your attitude say about your understanding of the cross? When's the last time that you let your offense and your pettiness be shown in the light of Jesus's glory? Because brothers and sisters, I can assure you, as I can assure you from this very week in my own life, that when you will take your pettiness and you will take your self-pity and you will bring it into the glory of Jesus, your sin will run from the light of Jesus like a cockroach from a spotlight. He is the son of God. And he is the son of man. And finally, the culminating portrait that Paul paints for us is that Jesus is the reigning king. Jesus is the reigning king. He says in verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted. Do you see that word is past tense? That word is past tense. It means it's already happened. It's already happened. He's already there. He's already been exalted. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him. It's already happened. The name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of his father. If you would have seen Jesus hanging on the cross, brothers and sisters, he wouldn't have looked much like a man, let alone a God. If you would have seen Jesus there, his beard ripped from his face, blood pouring from his wounds, his face swollen from the punches, spit running down his legs and feet, and you would have seen him there and someone would have tried to convince you that he was God, you would have said, I'm not even sure that he is a man. But Jesus had obscured his glory with that body. Jesus had obscured his glory with the stripes that were on his back. The spit that ran down his face and off of his feet were obscuring the glory of the one before whom all men will be separated into goats and sheep, before whom all men will answer and before whom all men will fall in worship and adoration, whether he knows them or not. See, Jesus' glory would not remain obscure, would it? On that day, he would be forsaken and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at the end, he would give up the ghost and say, into your hands, I commit my spirit. It is finished. But brothers, three days later, he would be raised by the Father. Forty days later, ascend to the right hand of the Father to take up his rightful throne, seated above all tribes, all tongues, all nations, so they might be brought into his presence, to his glory, to his exaltation. That setting aside his glory, setting aside his prerogatives was only temporary. And it was only temporary for him. And it's only going to be temporary for us. See, there's another picture in Isaiah that he's painting here for us. That verses not, verse nine is almost a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 45, but with a small and important change. Isaiah 45, 23 says this, to me, this is God speaking, to me, 
every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And here, Paul changes it ever so slightly so as to say, at the name of Jesus, Jesus, who is God, Jesus, who is high and lifted up, Jesus, who is the great I am, Jesus, who has split the sea, Jesus, who has rained the bread, Jesus, who has guided his people against Jericho and sent the walls crashing down, Jesus, who has slain the giant Goliath, Jesus, who has delivered his people time and time again. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is Jesus, though a man who emptied himself is the risen and reigning king. He is the God of the Old Testament and he is the God of the new covenant that has established Philippi, has established Iron City and will sustain us until the very end, brothers and sisters. Jesus' glory will not remain obscure and yours won't either. So humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Place the interests of others ahead of your own interests. Count others more significant than yourselves. And oh, I know, I know it will cost you and it will cost you comfort and convenience and preferences and fun. But there is a day coming. There is a day coming when all that has cost you will be traded for a crown of glory that will not tarnish, that will not rust, that instead will endure forever as you rule the nations with the risen and the reigning Christ, oh, be humble, Iron City, because you can afford it. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.